0: Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official pop pantheon. Well, girls, it's that time. This is a big moment for the show. This is part one of a forthcoming four-part series on Queen Bee herself, Beyonce. More on that in one second. I want to begin with some quick housekeeping. First of all, Gorgeous Gorgeous is this coming Saturday in downtown Los Angeles at Resident. This is my new queer pop party, iDJ. It is so much fun, pop extravaganza. A bunch of Pop Pantheon listeners have come out in the past. It is so great. I really hope to see a bunch of you there. The tickets for the party are going to be in the show notes of this episode. They will also be posted on all of my social media channels, which are DJ Louie. EXIV on both Instagram and Twitter and Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram. So go follow all of that and please come out to gorgeous gorgeous and if you do come introduce yourself to me. I'd love to meet you guys and I hope to see you guys there this Saturday 716 Resident Downtown Los Angeles. I'm going to skip the review reading thing today because we have such a meaty episode to get to, but also please leave a rating and review for pop pantheon on apple Podcasts, on spotify the ratings and reviews really help the show get recognized by algorithms and brought up in the rankings and thus in front of more people so i so appreciate everyone that's doing that please please continue to do that and i'll get back to reading them soon also get in our discord Discord's so much fun and this will be a particularly fun moment because i know we've got a lot of beyonce people up in there who are very interested in beyonce at the moment as her record rolls out so So the Discord link is also in the show notes of the episode and will be on social media as well. So let's just get into what this is. This is the first episode in four forthcoming episodes on Beyonce leading up to her new record, Renaissance Act One, which comes out on July 29th. The episodes will unfold as follows. The first, this one, is on Destiny's Child. The second episode will be on the first half of her solo career from Dangerously In Love through 4. The third episode will be on her self-titled record in 2013 through Black is King. And the fourth episode, which will air the week after Renaissance comes out, will be Thoughts on Renaissance and Reactions to Renaissance. Each episode will have a different guest. And I hope that this provides the comprehensive background on Beyonce as we all get ready for this new record. Obviously, she is the artist of many people's lifetime, especially in my generation. And I didn't think there was any way to break this down in any shorter fashion than to dedicate this much time to her. So... This episode, as I mentioned, is on Destiny's Child. We get into Beyoncé's origin stories. We get into the group's formation. We talk about all of their music, their influence on pop, how it set up Beyoncé's solo career, et cetera, et cetera, and it's a goodie, if a longie, but Beyoncé deserves the time, I think. So without further ado, here is Pop Pantheon, Destiny's Child. Destiny's <laughs> Child Beyonce. It's a single word laden with so much meaning. It connotes a pop star, yes, the greatest of her generation with a storied career rivaled only perhaps by the other rarefied tippy-top titans of the pantheon. But it now signals something much grander than that. Her work, especially in the last 10 years, has felt bigger than music, more a series of American cultural touchstones that rock our foundations and beliefs, challenge us and make us think and process and react, and in some instances, have helped define who we are as a society. Her otherworldly conceived and performed live shows stun and amaze even the most jaded cultural consumers in a way that makes it unfair to compare them to those of mere mortal pop superstars, more akin to the godly and celestial than to do. LeWipa. Her mere presence has come to feel awe-inspiring, something to stand and marvel at, an aura that conveys excellence, perfection, the best of what mass pop art can be, and yet something so much more than the word pop can contain. All of which is to say, even the other A-list pop stars kneel at her feet. (laughs) As such, it can sometimes feel hard to remember that underneath all of that achievement, the 25 years of gravity-defying, expectation-obliterating hits and trophies and shows and films and moments is a person. There was indeed a time when Beyonce wasn't Beyonce, but rather one of thousands upon thousands of aspiring artists who just wanted to work hard and make her mark as a musician and performer. And that story begins with the girl group she fronted, one of the most popular and influential of all time, Destiny's Child. Beyoncé Knowles was born on September fourth, 1981 in Houston, Texas, to Tina Knowles, a hairdresser and salon owner, and Matthew Knowles, a Xerox sales manager. As the story seems to go for so many American artists, Beyoncé discovered her talent for singing early in life, performing in church and in the school choir. As we dive into her career, it should be stated that from this moment to the present day, the myth of Beyonce as the celebrity with perhaps the tightest control over her public image of any in the modern era often consists only of what she wants us to know. But as the story goes, her ambition was evident from before she'd hit 10 years old, and as a result, Matthew and Tina began dutifully bringing her to various acting and singing auditions around the Houston area, where, at age 8, Beyoncé was cast in an R&B and hip-hop girl group called Girls' Time, alongside two girls with whom she'd eventually launch into superstardom, Latavia Robertson and Kelly Rowland. Girls' Time attracted some attention from R&B producer Arnie Frazier, who worked with the group and helped develop them as singers and performers, eventually, in 1992, getting them booked on Star Search, where they infamously came in second place. Following the group's defeat, Matthew, who had always taken an interest and served as a de facto co-manager of the group, decided to quit his job and manage the band full-time. This was a huge monetary sacrifice for the Knowles family, which materially impacted their lives, but spoke to Matthew's enduring belief in his daughter's success. He reduced the group to four members, Beyonce, Kelly, Latavia, and new member LaToya Luckett, introduced them to a boot camp regime inspired by the harsh training practices of Joe Jackson and the Jackson Five to teach them to properly perform and professionally sing and dance, and changed their name to Destiny and later Destiny's Child, based on a Bible verse from Isaiah. After booking the group as opening acts for R&B stars of the time like SWV and Drew Hill and a failed deal with Elektra, Matthew was able to negotiate a record contract with Columbia Records in 1996. There, Destiny's Child recorded their self-titled debut album in 1998. A collection of largely mature-sounding R&B ballads, the record featured the group's signature impeccable harmonizing but failed to take off, peaking at number 67 on the Billboard 200, but launched an unlikely number 3 hit with the Wyclef Jean remix of their ballad No No No, entitled No 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 Part 2. This song stood out from the languorous, benign material of the rest of the LP, with its up-tempo, harder-edged hip-hop production and Beyoncé's signature nimble sing-rapping style.
1: No 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 no
0: no no Following the success of no, no 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 Part 2, Destiny's Child quickly returned to the studio to begin work on their second record, The Writings on the Wall. Here, the group radically shifted their approach, ditching A C groovy ballads in favor of a much more teenage take on dating, sex, and good for nothing, immature boys who could never possibly live up to their standards. These records were sharp and pointed, showcasing a very clear point of view and Beyonce's continued development of her singular singing style, which featured a combo of virtuosic runs and innovative staccato phrasing. The music itself got an upgrade as well, thanks to A list R and B futurist collaborators like Missy Elliott, Rod. Jerkins, No Scrubs producer Kevin Shakespeare Briggs, and former Escape member Candy Burris, all of whom lent the album its irregular rhythms, tongue-twisting barbed lyrics, and pleasingly strange, rich instrumentation, which melded R&B's past and future. Notably, Beyoncé also receives a writing credit on nearly every single song on this record, as well. Released in the summer of 1999 and serving as a decidedly R&B and, more to the point, black answer to the bubblegum TRL pop explosion of Britney and Backstreet, the record was an instantaneous blockbuster, eventually selling over 13 million copies worldwide. The lead single, the kiss-off anthem Bills Bills Bills, peaked at number one on the Hot 100, while the R&B pop club banger Jumpin' Jumpin' hit number three, and the no-scrub sister song Bugaboo hit the top 40. But the piece de resistance was the Jerkins' produced number one skittering Rococo R&B stunner Say My Name, a paranoid track about infidelity that featured a then 18-year-old Beyonce's most dynamic and poignant vocal performance to date. But while Destiny's Child had become one of the hottest pop groups of the moment, all was not well behind the scenes. What began as a financial dispute between members LaToya and Latavia and Matthew that also included insinuations that he was giving unfair preferential treatment to both his daughter and to Kelly, quickly escalated to the sudden and unceremonious firing of them both by Beyonce and Matthew halfway through the promo cycle for writings. The group quickly replaced them with new members, Michelle Williams and Farrah Franklin, who appear in the infamous Say My Name video, lip-syncing to LaToya and Latavia obvious parts. This was quickly followed by Franklin's dismissal from the group under murky circumstances. All of this created a wave of bad press for Destiny's Child, which pegged Beyonce as a diva and reduced the group to a pop cultural punchline, with numerous tabloids and comedians comparing Destiny's Child to the popular reality show Survivor. This kind of negative media attention could have swamped this newly successful group, but ever the savvy image maker, Beyonce spun the entire narrative into the group's third record, aptly and pointedly titled... Survivor. Released in 2001, Survivor found the newly-minted trio expanding the scope of their ethos as a group, namely providing broad, grand pop anthems of women's empowerment and also the sound of their music. It's largely defined by its three singles, the number one hits, Bootylicious, an indelibly vivacious, fun, Stevie Nicks-sampling Rum Shaker that somewhat radically for its time celebrated non-white beauty standards, and the girl boss Capitalism as Feminism Anthem, Independent Woman Part One, which also appeared on the soundtrack for the smash movie, Charlie's Angels. And of course, the number two peaking title track, a blustering, baroque maelstrom of strings, drum programming, and brutal, almost operatic passive aggressiveness that directly addressed the group's recent struggles in the most gloriously petty way possible. Survivor helped Beyoncé and crew overcome the negative press narrative that had formed around them largely thanks to, frankly, some really great hit singles. The record sold over 10 million copies worldwide and helped all three launch solo careers. Michelle released a gospel album, Heart to Yours, in 2002, while Kelly had a number one smash with her Nelly duet dilemma and modest success with her debut solo album, 2002 Simply Deep. But of course, it was Beyonce who emerged as a true breakout star for the ages when she dropped her juggernaut debut record, 2003's Dangerously in Love, which featured four top five hits, including the number one, Crazy in Love, and set her on a path to the top of pop's Mount Olympus. But in a refreshing show of solidarity, Beyonce returned to Destiny's Child following her solo success to record their fourth and final album, 2004's Destiny Fulfilled, a sexier, more grown-up sounding record that featured two number three hits, the marching band banger Lose My Breath, and the hip-hop anthem Soldier. Since 2004, Destiny's Child has reunited several times, namely at Beyoncé's career capstone performances at the Super Bowl in 2013 and her legacy-defining Coachella headlining set in 2018. Destiny's Child has sold over 60 million records worldwide, making them one of the most successful girl groups in pop history. They have 10 top 10 singles on the Billboard Hot 100 and four number one hits. They've been nominated for 14 Grammys and won twice. Independent Woman Part 1 is recognized as the longest-running number one hit ever by a girl group, and, thanks to the group's song, the word bootylicious was adopted into the Oxford Dictionary in 2005. Here with me to discuss Beyoncé's origins and the legacy of the great Destiny's Child is senior writer for Rolling Stone, Brittany Spanems. Okay, so I am here once again with the brilliant... Senior Writer at Rolling Stone, Brittany Spanos. Brittany, welcome back to the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: I couldn't be more excited to have you here to kick off what is a pretty monumental moment in Pop Pantheon's history. <laughs> this is a topic that not only like the fan base has obviously clamored for for the run of the show, I'd say it's one of the three artists that most people obviously want to hear episodes on, but... Yeah. I think this is kind of the artist of many people in our generation's lifetime. There's no artist that I feel like has been able to maintain our interest and who we've been able to watch grow and been able to define so many different periods of our existence. That was one of the more moving things to me going back through all of her work was like, she has been present in various forms at once as the same artist that she's always been, but also as someone who's really evolved and deepened her work throughout the last 25 years. And it's gonna be really fun, I think, with you to go back and revisit and try to like remember what it was like To experience a Beyonce that wasn't necessarily the Beyonce, (laughs) the lionized queen of popular culture and of culture more broadly that we know her as today. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I was um, also very struck on this listen through of the way that she has been sort of exploring the same themes in her Mm -hmm. work. From different angles, obviously, it's not always been the same, but there were so many recurring themes that I experienced listening back through all of her music and some of them just to sort of like put them on the table to begin with that I think are really interesting and it's like I was just talking to you off mic a little bit about Lemonade. I almost can't even think about Lemonade anymore without thinking about the fact that Beyonce has been exploring these notions of monogamous love of conventional sort of heterosexual gender roles how they're balanced how they're imbalanced how being a feminist can exist in tandem with also being almost like a very sort of traditional woman who enjoys almost conservative gender roles within her relationship mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and then of course infidelity has been a theme in Beyonce's work that's very yeah. prevalent in Destiny's Child.
2: Yeah I-, I think like when you think about the evolution of her work and why albums like the self-titled and Lemonade struck so many chords and also are seen as the kind of peaks of her artistic growth, of her career, of something that marked a new era of Beyoncé, a very specific new era of Beyoncé. Is because there was so much of a, a battle of power and powerlessness and so much of her music and so much of these like struggles of, like you mentioned, like the gender roles and the monogamous relationship. Like what happens when you give yourself to someone, to one person, and they take advantage of that and they don't hold on to you with every last ounce of strength that they have. But there was always kind of a this sometimes facade, sometimes real sort mm. of expression of power in it of like revenge, of Mm. being an independent woman, a survivor. The vulnerability wasn't always as exposed as we got later in Beyonce's career because there was this need to express strength to express the idea that even if you have this guy who is like screwing you over it doesn't matter like you're still a badass woman who mm. can make it through and it's like you know like sometimes it's not sometimes you're just like really sad and pissed off and I think kind of being able to allow herself to be sadder in her music later mm. is something that I think really marked a huge shift for her.
0: Yes for sure and to sort of deal with the complicatedness of it and let that just be as opposed to playing the role of scorned, or you said playing the role of overcoming or playing the role of disappearing into wealth as a form of revenge or as a form of power, which is another thing she returns to quite a lot, the sort of intertwining nature of wealth. And feminism, and wealth, and later in her career with Jay, wealth accumulation and monogamous love is another huge continuing theme that she comes back to a lot. And that's a big
2: part of the myth making too, right? Is like becoming the beacon of overcoming and the beacon mm. of like strength in every single struggle that you face and strength in every single hurdle that you have to jump over creates the Grecian, Roman, ancient <laughs> goddess of Beyonce that she is and and projects on stage. You know, when you combine that messaging with what she literally is like as a physical anomaly of a performer. Right. Um, Which is like you know it's own A perfect description of her yes. Yeah like when you combine all those things you get this character this person who feels like so otherworldly and Mm -hmm. so of another dimension and so of course that like has built what our image and the myth of Beyonce is and who we want her to be and how she can persist beyond that and I think that's kind of a good reason and a big reason why the coming of the vulnerability Mm. was met with the absence of beyonce as a public figure Mm. in so many areas of the world yes you know that's why we don't get like beyonce interviews or beyonce appearances that's why the documentary was made many moons before all you know it's like all those things all those expressions of (laughs) of real sort of like talking about those things only comes in the music now it allows that
0: myth persist. Mm, Right. And also, I think you're on something so real because in Destiny's Child, resilience feels like the sort of approach she takes to a lot of these questions. And I almost feel like if you're thinking about Lemonade and the way that that connected infidelity in her marriage to greater intergenerational trauma, I almost felt like in thinking back over the course of her entire body of work that she has been trying to solve that question. Why do men in relationships me, my father, my husband, my boyfriends, why do they wrong me? Why do men behave this way? Why do men treat women this way? I feel like that has been, if not the central theme, at least one of the main central questions at the center of Beyonce's work starting right from no, 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 her first hit, which is essentially playing with the idea of like, is this man good enough for me? Can I trust this person? Are you stepping to me? Whatever it is, she has been attempting to ask and solve that question in some way through every single piece of work she has ever put out. And it started here with Destiny's Child. And that is a very moving thing to think about her work as kind of like one long pursuit of that and Lemonade providing some sort of resolution to 20 years of that.
2: The why men question. (laughs) (laughs)
0: why men why men the story of Beyonce that's gonna be my biography of her (laughs) on a lighter note it was such a fucking blast to get to go back through this Destiny's Child music because she was also an incredibly innovative musician and pop performer from the jump which was one of the best things to remember I think Beyonce hasn't gotten her flowers as a true genius and innovator until the last 10 years swing of her career and it was very fun to go back and revisit this and how innovative these songs were, how innovative her vocals are, how innovative her intonations are. She was a utter virtuoso and forward-thinking futurist as a pop star right from the jump. And that was another extremely entertaining aspect of this revisit for me.
2: And I think in the topic of like that resilience or that overcoming, like there is sort of the projection and the image that especially as a black woman in pop Mm. music you have to constantly present as Mm. i am holding my own with the white pop or white presenting like pop girls who are getting their followers more easily and who are getting the acclaim more easily i mean destiny's child was in a lot of white spaces and Mm -hmm. like they had to present a certain way and keep up a certain way and still weren't always seen on the same level or as equals without having to present an otherworldly image of performance of humanity, of who they are.
0: Mm, Right, that's such a good point because Beyonce also has had to kind of outrun that in her career, which is this sort of like image of perfection that is both, as you mentioned, her calling card as a pop star, but also at some point started to hinder her. And I think that was kind of the beauty of both self-titled and Lemonade has been the way that she's found to sort of strip some of that back and to present a raw image of herself. But I think what was so amazing to me also is, yes, the manicured nature of Beyonce was very present, and of all the girls, was very present as she's child. And as you said so astutely, they were often operating in very white spaces, especially in that time period. I mean, the other major pop stars that they were competing with more or less were like Britney and Christina, a lot of more white-presenting pop females. But what was also so great about this, and I think also sort of threads Beyonce's whole career together, is they were very proudly black in their music, in the way they presented. Yes, it had the patina of perfection, of course. We know that that's Beyonce's thing. But she was a very proudly, squarely black woman, R&B artist, someone that nodded at black musical traditions from day one on every record through Destiny's Child, through the solo career, in various ways and in deepening ways. But I thought that that was also very striking to me listening back to this and remembering, as you mentioned, the context that this was all in, that they were Black women that really represented Black women. And I think they took that very, very seriously. That was part of their mission statement.
2: Yeah. And I mean, my thing with any great pop artist and any artist that rises to the top of the heap, they are historians. Like, they're Mm nerds about this every great pop artist knows their history like Mm -hmm. you can tell the difference between a pop artist who has studied the history of what they are trying to do well beyond the specific music they're making but the history of what it takes to be a success what it takes to have relevance well beyond the quote unquote prime that the industry gives especially for women and especially for women of color and Beyonce is someone who has studied up and like you see that in everything that she's done not only as a member of Destiny's Child but you see that in every solo performance every award show performances like who she had honored when she was young like aligning herself with people like tina turner and aretha franklin and mariah carey and prince and michael jackson you know she was someone who was like in the thick of it early on she wasn't like okay i'm only gonna be next to the boy bands who are right. also really popular right now she's right. like no 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 right, <laughs> like right. I'm launching my solo career. I'm going to be performing with Prince on stage Absolutely. because that is the history of pop music. Absolutely. That
0: means I am here to stay. Absolutely. I love that point. And that's what makes her, I think, such a rich text for people like us who love to just pick this shit apart. Because yeah. there's no move that she makes that we're seeing that she hasn't seen. That's one of the delights of critically assessing Beyonce's work at Legacy is like... All those Easter eggs are there and she's thought of it before we ever have. And I think she's always had a very clear sense of how she wants to be positioned, how she wants to be seen, how she's positioning herself in these lineages of pop stars, in these lineages of black music and black artists in particular, and also... As a representative of women and i think that that's been an extremely common theme in all of her music is how am i providing a voice for some group of people i feel like destiny's child i could comb through all these songs and think about what she was trying to provide an avenue for with her voice and what she was saying and sort of utilizing her own experiences to be a voice for a large group of people i feel like that has always been very core to what beyonce and what destiny's child was doing from the beginning. So I wanna take us back really quickly. I wanna talk just quickly about girl groups before we get into Beyonce's story in particular. We did an entire episode on the Supremes. So if you want a very detailed rundown of that 60s girl groups, what the aesthetics were, what kind of music they were making, how they presented themselves, I think that's an interesting episode for you to revisit in preparation for this. But my first question for you, Brittany, is can you talk just a little bit historically in American popular music and specifically with Black and R&B girl groups, how have they operated, what kind of music have they made, and And how have they presented themselves in the pop landscape?
2: in the way that Destiny's Child presented themselves like the words that we brought up like perfection and kind mm-hmm. of this manicured polished look like that was so much of what the history of the black American girl group has always been like that right. has been the presentation that has been necessary to and go beyond the idea of like race records of being not universal enough like there was this idea that being a black artist generally was not going to be universally popular or marketable or fashionable or make money for labels or make money for the industry and so you really had to present yourself as perfect as possible, as Mm -hmm. polished as possible, as quote unquote white seeming as possible Mm -hmm. so that white audiences didn't feel offended or didn't feel like they were seeing someone who's too hypersexual. They weren't seeing like these like rowdy blues women who had questionable morals and drinking habits Mm -hmm. and had sex with everybody. Mm -hmm. Like you were getting women who had perfectly flat iron hair, who wore these buttoned down like beautiful outfits that covered up and weren't too offensive. Most of them very slim bodies Mm -hmm. and so, you know, the story from the Supremes and Dream Girls, like, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> like, don't, if you didn't fit that, <laughs> you didn't make it very far. Yeah. <laughs> just being able to give this image of what was the beauty standard, mm. which is, of course, a white beauty standard. So that's what a lot of girl groups came up against. And it was effective for a lot of, especially Motown girl groups, where they were modeled in this way where they could appeal to any sort of audience. They sang very inoffensive songs, songs that were simple love songs, songs that were beautiful, songs that really just highlighted those harmonies. They we're not doing what the rowdy blues women were doing in the decades prior. This like manicured image, this very uniform image, three women matching. You don't need to know who is who. There's like maybe one star if you're Diana
0: Ross and like right, they, right. everyone <laughs> else. You're just matching. You look like just perfect copies of each other. Mm. Yeah, as you're talking, I'm sort of thinking about the sort of sanding down of the edges, the ways that a lot of, especially these 60s girl groups, 50s and 60s girl groups, had to present essentially glamour and maybe even a white person's version of glamour and, as you said, a Mm -hmm. white person's version of beauty standards and weren't necessarily free to explore the more jagged edges, the raw side, as you mentioned, of sort of blues music. They presented a version of R&B that was inoffensive, perfectly made. I mean, those Holland, Dozier Holland songs and Ashford and Simpson songs are just utter pop perfection. And as you said, simple love songs. You Keep Me Hanging On, Where Did Our Love Go, Dancing in the Streets. had to, as you had been talking about with both Beyonce on some level, but definitely with these groups from this period, this image of perfection so that nothing could possibly be impeachable about you, because if one hair fell out of place, you risked losing your access to mainstream aka white American popular culture.
2: Yeah. Respectability politics are obviously such a big part of music. Generally we have the virgin versus whore kind of dynamic and dichotomy in all of pop music, but of course it's like a million times worse as a black woman in music where if you are even seen in the horror side of things, if you're seen as overly sexual, if you're seen as someone, especially in the 50s through the 70s, like if you were seen doing this, you were a liability. Like you were someone who was not going to be played on the radio. You're not someone who was going to be marketed to whiter audiences. You were demonic. You Mm. were someone who was going to badly affect young people. Right. Like steal white men or something. I don't know. Like it was just like weird shit like that. Like it was like, you know, like a lot of, them went deeper into the kind of virginal, mm. angelic side of things mm-hmm. and had to become indistinguishable from the white girl groups of the time.
0: But many of these
2: girls were much better. <laughs> (laughs) singers, so they did a lot better.
0: (laughs) That's team, Brittany. That's really interesting what you're saying about the presentation of sexuality, because that's another thing that comes up a lot with Beyonce is sort of her conservative values, but her desire to express her sexuality throughout her career has been very interesting, and there are certain contexts where Beyonce feels comfortable sharing her sexuality, and it's usually in the context of being in a traditional monogamous relationship. She's able to sort of explore her sexuality there, but then in other moments, especially in Destiny's Child, she's really, as I think maybe there was a reflection of what you're talking about a little bit here, kind of steers more towards a conservative value system with this stuff that might just be standing in the lineage of what you're talking about with this stuff.
2: Yeah. And the way that people have pitted Beyonce against other Black artists is the idea that she has in some way, and this came more so in the early to mid part of her solo career, where it was the idea that she was in some way only marketing herself as a palatable Black artist to white audiences. Mm. by being someone who was trying to overly uphold the idea of the traditional marriage of black wealth of this idea that you have this aspirational life and I mean it's all the same things right like that were happening decades prior but it's the idea of her being a light-skinned black woman too at the helm of a group of dark-skinned black women Mm. like that was the other thing her being the breakout star her having the more so traditional features on her face and on her body that seemed to make her maybe more palatable to non-black audiences generally you know Mm. like That's the other dynamic, and the same thing with Diana Ross. There's a lot of levels and layers to those things.
0: So how does what we're talking about here about girl groups historically inform the wave of girl groups that Destiny's Child sort of appeared at the end of, which was this early and mid-90s boom of black R&B girl groups, largely huge in the R&B world. Some crossed over more squarely into pop. I'm talking TLC, and Vogue, SWV, Xscape. Can you talk a little bit about how those girl groups operated and yeah. how they were either informed by these earlier waves and threw out some of the rules and adapted it for that time period.
2: Yeah, I mean, just to, like, bridge those eras together, I mean, we really have to thank and give so much appreciation to the Black women of the disco era who helped change so much of how Black women presented themselves on stage and musically. Mm. Donna Summer. and of course that allowed Diana Ross to be able to express herself more freely in her own music mm. as a solo artist there was this moment in the 70s into the 80s black women were in this renaissance of liberation of right. sexual liberation and creating music that was really really popular and doing super well I mean right. thinking about just how big Donna Summer is and she's like moaning on every song like <laughs> that's like incredible <laughs> we have so much to thank for them providing this like sexual liberation to right. a new generation of women that bled into we go into the hip hop era and we have a lot of female rappers who mm-hmm. are singing about sex positivity we have mm-hmm. like Queen Latifah and we have salt and pepper
1: Let's talk about sex for now to the people at home or in the crowd it keeps coming up anyhow don't be coy a or, or make voice the topic cause
2: have all of these black women who are really on the come up and to make themselves equals with the men in the game who were getting more attention more success more label recognition they were meeting them where they were at but they were singing it from a female perspective and they were a little more aggressive not mm-hmm. doing the pretty pinned up right girl group idea this motown girl group looks that we had they were like we're gonna wear like yeah, grittier. we were mm-hmm. like wearing sneakers and right. like bomber jackets and
0: right. like you know we're cool. Like we're right. like you know right. like
2: we're not doing this. We're not gonna be like the women before. Like we're like gonna dress casual. We're not or like, like
0: play with gender a little bit. Like a lot of tomboys. Yeah, boys, play with All the artists you're mentioning yeah. were not presenting as the traditional glamorous, perfect old Hollywood version of femininity. They allowed themselves yeah. to be a little bit more masculine too.
2: Yeah, and then we enter the '90s, and of course, New Jack Swing is taking off, mm-hmm. and we have this R and B and soul. Renaissance that's yes. happening because hip-hop is becoming one of the most dominant genres in music. It is very rapidly becoming the voice of a generation. It's becoming the sound of the youth, becoming the sound of what people were listening to. And it was also we're kind of seeing the case that black artists are extremely palatable and mm-hmm. extremely marketable. And this is no longer a seg I mean, it's to be like it's no longer segregationist, right. but like music is always segregationist of course. Or whatever. But like of course. we're seeing a lot of black artists break to the top 40. And we're seeing that done with RB music with New Jack. Swing—the kind of fusion of pop and soul and R&B and hip hop—we're just seeing like a complete renaissance in the power players in music becoming black artists, mm. and so of course there are always pop groups, there are always groups, their vocal groups just always do well in everything. Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, and we have the boy band waves of the 70s into 80s with like Jackson 5 and New Edition. And of course, that bleeds into the 90s with like Boyz II Men. And of course, there's always going to be the female counterparts to a lot of these groups. And we have TLC. And and we have SWV. Oh,
1: right we
2: have Invoke. Yeah. we have all these groups that are making music that's not necessarily bubblegum pop in any way. Like, you know, their music is R&B, it's hip hop, there's rappers in the group, they're doing the same thing as maybe slightly older artists and the people that they looked up to and doing it in their own way. So much of it reflecting sex positivity. Mm-hmm. And that was such a big part of all of this music at that time is like, we are evoking this idea of the salt and pepper, like
0: safe sex and, right. all, you know, it's,
2: it's just like a big part of it.
0: And TLC, I think being one of the most yeah. fascinating groups in this alignment, especially when you're thinking yeah. about Precursors of Destiny's Child, because they were all gorgeous and so cool. And I mean, I worshipped all of them growing up, but yeah. they were so around the way. Yeah. They were like your homies that you wanted to hang out with, which was really interesting. Yeah. And Vogue was more of a throwback, I felt like, to sort of more of the glamour of uh, Supremes or something like that, but done over in the hip hop era. But they were still singing about free your mind and Black revolutionary yes. topics. There was and- more liberation yes. and all of that. And I think, as you pointed out, which I think is a really important element here, they were making R&B music very squarely, for the most part, not attempting to make a ton of concessions to the pop of that moment. Yeah. Like, when I think about En Vogue and I think about TLC, I think about r and I think about the people that are working with, Dallas Austin, Babyface, Organized Noise, Jermaine Dupri, it's like they're very comfortably able to operate as r artists. And that yeah. is crossing over, especially when you come over with a group like TLC. As you mentioned, the doors have been swung open to where sort of like proudly and squarely black artists and black art forms have access without yeah. making massive compromises to the top of the pop charts which I feel like is a really important element of this particular wave of girl groups.
2: That's pop music like that's like so much and I mean all pop music sounds (laughs) like what those artists created in that era and the way that like the women of the 70s bridged that sexual liberation for black female performers what pop music sounds like today is bridged by what R&B New Jack Swing and hip hop artists of the 90s created.
0: All right, so let's talk about Destiny's Child can you just give us kind of like a broad strokes overview of who Matthew Tita and a little girl with a big dream from Houston, Texas, <laughs> Beyoncé Knowles are and how this family business of starting a girl group begins.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, Beyoncé is very much of that era of yeah. pop girls where it's right. like she was singing as soon as she was out the womb. Like, people <laughs> recognized that talent almost <laughs> immediately. She sang in church choir. She sang everywhere. She, like, she was studying for this mm-hmm. moment. She came from, families family was like pretty middle class. Like her mom owned a salon and her dad was a, a salesperson of some kind mm-hmm. and like she had her sister Solange. They just kind of were getting by in Houston but of course Beyonce is this little budding star who's doing dance classes, who's singing everywhere, who's very clearly on a different path. Mm-hmm. There's a higher path that they have realized that Beyonce is gunning for.
0: And that's the order it comes in. They realize her talent. It's not like these are the dreams of the parents that get translated onto the kid. The kid's talent is in forming this direction that they're taking as family yeah i mean with, <laughs> with any sort of element i feel like the, <laughs> i feel like something to like couch this in is that with the gnolls,
2: <laughs> yeah. I feel like we only know a well manicured perfect story beyonce
0: is nothing as you said earlier <laughs> if not a myth maker she has yes, made so myth.
2: <laughs> listen as far as we know the story, <laughs> this was Beyonce's goal. Right. The messier part of it that we'll get to is like very much, it becomes a goal that her father overtakes in a lot of ways. Right. That's not a, a secret part of it, but at least from the inception of it, it seems like this was very much a Beyonce driven thing. And I, you know, I honestly, I would
0: say that's mostly true. Like I feel like- I mean, it's obviously true that she is like yeah. the most preternaturally talented human being in Right, alive. right, that. <laughs> but I mean, like,
2: I, I think like in terms of it being like her driving, right force of like this yeah, yeah. is what I'm doing like I would say that's majority true like I think right. there is a little more probably of like Matthew early on mm-hmm, than mm-hmm, I think
1: like
2: mm-hmm. is often discussed but yeah so she's very early on driven to become a musician so she ends up like auditioning for girl groups and I think she's doing like auditions generally as a child and finds herself in a group called girls time and they end up auditioning for star Search and not getting through
0: your challenges are a young group from Houston. Welcome Beyonce, Lativia, Nina, Nikki, Kelly and Ashley, the hip hop rapping girls time. It's a bunch
1: of shit.
2: And of course, girls' time also includes Kelly Rowland, who's right. a childhood friend. I feel like they knew each other from the time they were really, really young. Like I know Kelly was like living with the family for a little bit. Latavia also is Latavia, Kelly, and Beyonce, and then some girls that Right. We never hear from again. <laughs> Where are they now? <laughs> but at that point, after Star Search, that's when Matthew takes over. Right. And, and like, quits his job, right? Quits his job. Yeah. That causes like, a lot of, like, family issues. Right. It's, like, a big deal that he has quit his job. Mm-hmm. They go from doing fine to not doing fine because there's no guarantee that, like, girl's time is going to do well this Right. I- and... <laughs> <laughs> he like cuts some girls they start renaming the group and he also starts like training them right like, they go through a lot of training at this right. point like it's very famously would run tracks and sing i think maybe in heels
0: <laughs> he always gives me a serena and venus's dad vibes like very similar yes. energy
2: yes absolutely yeah. they were just like in like a hardcore training they were very much getting ready for this moment
1: <laughs> And then Way you are. Oh, I be where you are.
2: And they end up changing the name and it's like a Bible verse or something that they end up going with like Destiny, Destiny's Child eventually for the name of the group. It takes them a while to get signed. They
0: have an early deal with Elektra that ends up falling through during this yeah. mid-90s period.
2: Yeah. And they eventually end up with Columbia, right. which is the label that
0: Beyonce is still with. The group at this point is the four... Beyonce, Kelly, Latoya, and Latavia.
2: Latoya is added sometime during the name change. Like sometime during this point where like Matthew's taken over. The foursome is established before they're signed.
0: Like in this era when they're getting signed to Columbia, is it always obvious that Beyonce is the lead singer and star of this group? Like is that how it's being positioned?
2: I'm assuming so, like especially because her dad's the manager.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's an idea that if your
2: dad is the one taking over, I'm sure that gives you a little bit extra treatment. But also I she's mean,
0: Beyonce, so that's she's the other Beyonce. Part of it. Yeah.
2: And so I feel like that it's pretty obvious that they right. needed like some sort of leader or like the person who took charge.
0: Right. They're modeling this more on the Supremes model than on the TLC model. This isn't like the... Kind of, yeah. This isn't like a threesome where everybody plays in equal parts. This is a foursome where there's one clear point of the triangle.
2: Yeah. It seems clear that the Knowles were the driving force, generally, of this group. Like, obviously, Matthew and Beyonce as, like, a partnership. And Tina designing
0: the outfits. Of course. It was a family business.
2: Yeah, it was a family business, and it was the Knowles family business. And, of course, Kelly gets grandfathered in through a close
0: friendship. didn't. Famously, Kelly have, like, difficult family life that caused her to essentially be, like, a Noel sister, more or less.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about it, too, is just, like, how close Kelly and Beyonce have always been. Right.
0: All right. So they get this deal with Columbia, and they put together their 1998 self-titled record. Talk yeah. to me a little bit about this album. I want to obviously zero in on the soul hit from it, which is a remix of the song No, No, No. But in terms yeah. of like the sort of girl groups that we were sort of positioning this within in the 90s, how does this record sound? What do they sing about? What is the vibe of this album?
2: Yeah, I had listened to this album in a very long time. Like it's like a very sexy R&B. Mm-hmm. Like it's very much like slow jam R&B.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Almost neo soul, I thought on some instances. Yeah, very
2: neo soul. It's like kind of wild that they led with that.
0: It's a little bit like boilerplate, is what I kept thinking when I was listening to it. Like these songs could have been sung by anyone for a group that ended up having a very strong point of view and personality as an entity. This album felt a little bit fine. Very well sung. That's what I kept thinking. Like, the training paid off. The harmonies sound impeccable. They sound beautiful at every track.
2: Right, and I feel like maybe it made sense from a label perspective and production perspective because ballads did very well. R&B ballads hit number one in a way that we may never see again (laughs) in our lifetime. (laughs) Sad to say. I think maybe it doesn't make sense now because I can't imagine any of those songs taking off at this point in pop music or taking off in the way that so many other Destiny's Child songs, like what made those other Destiny's Child songs so successful because they were so
1: fun. Yes,
0: and sharp and lively and like direct and hit you over the head. There's nothing subtle about those Destiny's Child songs, whereas these all feel sort of like yeah. they're just sort of there for the most part.
2: They're there and they're pretty inoffensive. Yeah. Like they're just kind of totally. here you go. <laughs> Here's some ballads. Do you like them?
0: <laughs> well, it's missing the operatic bombast. I mean, Destiny's yes. Child songs are bombastic at their core, yeah. always. This album is not bombastic in any way. So yeah. this record doesn't perform particularly well when it's first released. Its fortunes are turned around when one of these boilerplate ballads called No 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 Gets remixed by Wyclef and turned into the song No No No, no Part 2. Talk to me about no, no 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 Part 2, what it sounds like, what it's about, and how maybe it's like an aha crystallizing moment for Destiny's Child and for their sound and point of view. I mean, it's,
2: there's a little more of a spark there. There's mm-hmm. a little more personality. There's mm-hmm. a little more of just we have great harmonies, like we can make really fun and cool yes. songs. It's just like, sounds like a cool song, like mm-hmm. very TLC more so than the rest of the album.
0: This is the remix. The Jeeps pump this new remix. Uh-huh. This is the remix. Radios play this remix. This is the remix. The dumb pump this remix. This is the remix. Very hip hop forward. Very hip hop forward. I yeah. thought. Which is more than the other record sake It's got kind of like a spare boom bap hip hop beat to it. And then I think the other important things to note here that feel like for what Destiny Shop is going to become is A, the theme of the song, which is essentially about a guy that isn't good enough and rebuffing that person. How could you possibly think that you're worthy of me? You are not. And men as essentially kind of trifling, like scrubs, essentially, like for lack of a better word. And then, of course, the innovation that Beyonce is credited with fairly early in this career is the sing-rapping thing that she does on this song. Yeah.
1: Back in this way, gonna lose my love I ain't got no time to play Better hurry up Cause time I come around and cruise around your way I see you on the corner but you don't know what to say When I walk up to you, baby, you seem so shy And i had a girl like
2: that fusion of all the genres that's happening in the 90s. Think about like fantasy for example with like Mariah and ODB and like having the combination of a very pretty pop song with a rap verse. The fusion of that was becoming so much more prevalent. I think Mm -hmm. Beyonce finding the intersection of that for herself as like we are doing this very traditional girl group structure but like we're able to fuse in the hip hop element without having to even like add a verse from someone else. Like this is just like we're able to perform this ourselves.
0: Everything in one which is also something that Beyonce continues to push forward in her Working career is rapping, singing. I'm a rapper and a singer. I mean, that is something that has run through almost every single Beyoncé record from yeah. Destiny Child through the solo career. I kept thinking about Breakdown, the Mariah Carey's Bone Thugs and Harmony yeah. song from Butterfly, because I think yeah. Mariah really was somebody that introduced rapping into her singing, and I think was incredibly innovative. Obviously, you mentioned Fantasy with fusing the two genres. Another person that came to mind for me a little bit was Mary J in terms of being Mm -hmm. essentially a classic R&B singer, but someone that very squarely placed their aesthetics in hip hop culture. Beyonce's always been very interested in, and I think it's intriguing that her first hit song speaks so directly to this, positioning herself in hip hop culture, Beyonce has always not wanted to be seen as some sort of exclusively pop figure. She's equally placed herself at the nexus of mainstream traditional pop stardom and hip hop culture. Yeah. The relationship with Jay had served a purpose for that. And then, of course, her making of records like Diva or Half yeah. the Songs on B Day or Ape Shit, whatever it is, Beyonce has yeah. always been, I'm a pop star, but I'm also someone that belongs to hip hop culture. And I think that that's why this song. Yeah. Feels it was like such a big boom moment for Beyonce in general. Yeah. So No 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 hits number three on the Hot 100 in 1998. It's Destiny's Child' breakthrough song, but I don't know, maybe... I'll characterize it you tell me what you think I don't think that they were necessarily making a huge impact I felt like that was the kind of hit where it was like one of a slew of girl group songs of this time period and I'm not sure that they were registering in any meaningful way outside of having the hit song do you think that's correct?
2: Yeah because what's happening simultaneously is the explosion of bubblegum pop right too so like they are absorbing what is at this point now a slightly older sound as people their age are making this like very swedish pop music <laughs> like they are just making something totally different right now and of course they're the bridge for so much of that is that these artists vocally were pulling from all the same black artists of that course beyonce right. is also pulling from that destiny child is also pulling from and right. so it's a fusion of this like really pristine very european like dance pop right with like 16 year old white kids <laughs> like doing like their best like mary j blige impressions and,
1: like, <laughs> Listen, nothing <laughs> speaks to what you're talking
0: about better than hit me baby <laughs> one more time being written for yeah. tlc there's just nothing right. that encapsulates everything that you're saying max martin and crew thought they were making tony braxton <laughs>
2: Songs yeah. or something right and I mean I, Britney Spears was auditioning with Tony Braxton songs right. with Whitney Houston songs like right. that's what's happening like they are suddenly in competition now with the heavyweights that have already existed and kids their age who are making music that sounds like music made by 16 and 17 year olds mm-hmm. that's appealing to kids and to teens and of course you know this is getting huge airplay on MTV and on the radio they're kind of taking over in a very specific way
0: So following the success of No, 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 they get back into the studio very quickly to begin work on what will become their blockbuster second album, 1999's The Writings on the Wall. Do you have a sense of like, maybe just speculating how they refined their vision for what they were as a group in the process of making this album?
2: They leaned into the idea of like what it meant to become more pop. Like you're kind of seeing this emergence of boy bands and also of these like solo female singers. The Spice Girls, of course, are still very big at this point. And to think about, like, what's happening across all those, like, these artists were just, again, like, making, like, really fun mm-hmm. songs. And right. that's what the kids loved. And so I think there was a way into that where they could still make music that was very unapologetically pulling from the history of Black music. Because also, again, these artists were also doing the same. but. Yes make it really fun and kind of still have those same themes and make it sound like kids their age are making it. Right. Because
0: the first album sounded very, very yeah. much older. <laughs> so how do they go about doing that? Like, who do they pick as collaborators and what is the point of view that Destiny's Child develops in creating these songs?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot more of that, like, confidence of, they obviously will later have Independent Woman, but they have this, like, very independent, many shit, they can't pay my bills, <laughs> like, <laughs> they're cheating on me, yes. they're not worth right. it. And being this unified front of these angelic harmonies while kind of singing about just like how trash men are
1: <laughs>
2: they have dark child ronnie jerkins my queen candy burris yes that does of course
0: <laughs> we're gonna need to discuss <laughs> my boy Kevin Briggs, Shakespeare, I don't even know how to say it, who had the hottest 1999 and 2000 ever, (laughs) and then proceeded to what? Disappear from the face of the earth? That's the investigative podcast I need to see, is what happened to my boy, Kevin Briggs, who produced Bills, 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 Bugaboo, No Scrubs. It makes me ill off of No Strings Attached, like was just out here killing the game and then just disappeared. Anyway, we'll get back to him in a second. Yeah, what
2: happened to him?
0: So No Scrubs had come out in February of 1999. Written by Candy Burris, produced by Shakespeare. I think, interestingly, Noah Scrubs is kind of a palette setter for this. Because the other thing that I was going to bring up is one thing that Dark Child and Shakespeare are at the next point of is this sort of R&B futurism. So, like, if the first record was very sort of rooted in the sounds of early and mid-90s R&B girl groups, what Rodney Jerkins is doing with Brandy... creating songs that are utilizing synthesizers and electronic production yeah. elements to bring the vibe and ethos of R&B into a futuristic, almost electronic setting. These are songs that are made electronically. They're not made with like drum machines. They're made to sound almost like cyborg-esque synthesizers yeah. and irregular rhythms. Other producers are doing this in this era too. Pharrell and Timberland are creating these sort of arrhythmic, futuristic-sounding R&B songs. So I yeah. think these choices of collaborators speak to what beyond Beyonce and the girls were attempting to do on this music which is to stop rooting their music in sort of like the recent past and help as we say operate at the nexus point of the past and the future of R&B which is what these collaborators speak to to me
2: It's so much to just like a, a visual shift as well like this turn of the millennium visual shift that's happening in the way that things are made like the directors who are working with these right. artists there's like a repackaging happening of everyone at this point where they are looking to the new millennium to this kind of like Y2K moment and looking at as like this very like matrixy type of futurism and yeah. thinking about just even what like Timberland and Missy right. did with each other, but then also like Aaliyah yeah. and like helping reshape what she would become as a pop star.
0: I mean, I think Aaliyah hangs heavy over this record when I was listening to it this time. Oh, absolutely. The sort of way the Timberland beats are arrhythmic and use condensed syllables and production in the first half of a bar and then have this giant space. Like if you think about, are you that somebody? The way that those arrhythmic sounding production choices work i feel like that is exactly in the mix here on a song like bills 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 which is the lead single from this record it's essentially has a harpsichord lead to it and then this very yeah. like, arrhythmic stutter pitter-patter rhythm
1: And first we started and recool It's like a really fun, catchy, kind of like
2: hip-hop inflected song. But the harmonies, again, are so old school and like how they structure themselves and like form as a group and as like a Mm -hmm. unit in it Mm -hmm. where there's that mixture of these like very Supremes-esque, Motown-esque harmonies singing very unsupremes, un-Motown-esque themes. (laughs) Oh, I love
0: that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. that's like, so the can you pay my
2: bills yes. can you pay my telephone bill <laughs> like I don't think you can I think you're broke yeah <laughs>
0: Which is so funny because I kept thinking to myself listening like lyrically to this song. What are the politics of this? Like is the message yeah. of this song essentially I would only be with a man that could support me financially? Is that the message here? I guess. Right. Yeah. I feel like
2: it's like, you know, I, if you can't help me do this. I will just take care of it myself is what right. I always got from it.
0: Right. But like, do you get the impression that if the guy could pay her bills that would make her more apt to be with him or do you think she's just sort of like using the euphemism of not being able to pay her bills as a larger point about him being a loser?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's in the Scrubs pantheon if you will. Like, right. it's like the bugaboos, the <laughs> the Scrubs, they're all kind of the same guy, right? Like, they're, like, they're not with it. They can't right. do much for you. Right. They're kind of just hanging on.
0: And the other, which I know you're gonna appreciate which is like such an incredible <laughs> destiny's child trademark is the campy background harmonies and then you asked to use my car car <laughs> and now you asked to use my car man you use my cell phone
1: phone and
0: then you use my cell phone, phone. <laughs> <laughs> those are the perfect representations of sort of these like pristine <laughs> Supremes-esque harmonies but like with these almost yeah. like ridiculous Y2K millennial topics thrown <laughs>
2: into the mix. Which is like really a big part of what separated Destiny's Child from other vocal groups of that era too is like it is a very like old school way but they were doing essentially what like a lot of the female solo artists were doing at the time mm. with, like the big runs and fleshing out these songs with background harmonies but right. also like you have like these big moments of huge vocal bombast and runs the boy bands weren't doing that as much. Right. My
0: girls were not doing that. There was like a virtuosic vocal performance yeah. going on here. What I love also about the aesthetics of this song is sort of the contrast between smoothness and jaggedness, the way that they elongate. Can you pay my bills? Can you pay my telephone bills? Can pay my bills? Can you pay my bills? Can you pay my can chill? And then the second part of the chorus being this syncopated I don't think you do. I- There's a lot of texture and layers and contrast that creates a lot of like the bombast and the sort of dynamic fun of listening to it. It's like you never know what's coming next and there's a real tension and release to it that I think is what yeah. one of the things that makes it brilliant. And the last thing I want to talk about with Bills, 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 which as we know goes on to become a number one smash and really is the establishing Destiny's Child hit is yeah. Beyonce's relationship to money. I was reading a retrospective review of Writings on the Wall in Pitchwork and the writer Catherine St. Assef, I think is her name, said yeah. Beyonce in particular would develop this theme at length throughout her career money as a weapon wielded by and against women, which I thought was like just an interesting theme about this because I do think this is something that Beyonce does return to quite a lot in her music is, what role does money play in gender dynamics? And that's why Mm -hmm. I was trying to kind of needle at you a few minutes ago, which is just like, what is she saying, I guess, about women and money and the power that money plays in a male-female relationship in the context of this song? It's very much
2: the theme of independence is like, it runs through like the idea of aspirational wealth of, Having your own financial security in so many ways, like even before she calls herself a feminist and before she kind of takes on those political views, that is what her politics and her feminism are is like the idea of female financial security and how mm-hmm. that's used against and you know women are able to wield or have it wielded against them. And you, know, you think of like songs later like Sugar Mama, where right. she's the one who's having the yeah. financial say right, in the right, relationship. Right. Upgrade you, yes, the, mm-hmm. that one where she's not only am I a power player in this, but I can also help you right. become a power player in the way that I am.
0: And yet at the same time celebrating traditional gender dynamics, because at the same time she wouldn't be happy this song seems to make me think with a guy that didn't earn money. So I think think that that's the dichotomy of a lot of Beyonce's gender politics are evident on this song which is like yes independence is important and women achieve independence through wealth but also that men should be a certain version of traditional masculinity, which includes them also being breadwinners and having money. Otherwise, she's not paying attention to them. So both yeah. of those things are really on display in this song, I feel like.
2: And I wonder how much it's related to a lot of that intergenerational stuff. Yes, I feel like right. that's something that for a lot of millennials and for people who grew up with this era, like there was so much thought and like consideration of what does it mean to have that financial independence and stability? I think for our parents, they were the first generation of women who were able to build that for themselves. Right. And, like we're able to make, decisions that their parents couldn't make, that their mothers and grandmothers couldn't make. And so we saw that affect them and how they made their decisions about how our families moved and like what that would look like.
0: All right. So that's the first of four huge hits from this record. The other three being Bugaboo, Jumpin', Jumpin', and of course, Say My Name. So are these... Other three songs, emblematic, writing on the wall songs, sort of exploring similar themes. And let's talk about each of them. Maybe starting with "Bugaboo," which is the second yeah. single.
2: Yeah, I mean, like again, like there is this like creation, this new invention of language at this era of like how to call men who suck like different <laughs> names. You know, like
0: <laughs> I, <laughs> I think love it's that. It's just like
2: how do we create more words to talk about the ways that men are failing us? Right. You know, Bugaboo, very similar, very kind of, again, like a guy who's not really good for much.
0: Mm-mm. And annoying and very irritating also on top of it all.
2: Very annoying, very irritating, mm-hmm. just a loser, just general loser
1: vibe. With you. And so-
0: again, with the money thing. Just because you bought me shoes doesn't mean that I'm going to be with you. There's always this feeling of like, what role are men attempting to use money to wield power, and how is she throwing it back at them? Jump and jump in, ladies.
2: Leave your man at home. Club is full of ballers. You know, you could get someone richer at the club, like right. If you leave your man at home, like, there's a lot of themes of like getting to a higher place by like, monetary gain.
1: Jumpin'
0: jumpin'. jumpin' jumpin' is interesting too because it's the first in a lineage of a lot of songs where Beyonce uses going to the club and looking hot as a way to make her boyfriend jealous. She returns to this yeah. in Freakum dress. She returns to it in Jealous. It's a theme that she goes, I, Yes, favorite kind of Beyonce. Song. <laughs> Bugaboo also contains some of the sing rap signature Beyonce things. It's
1: not hot. Then when I'm blocking your phone number, you call me over your best friend's house.
0: Which makes me wonder another question I wanted to ask you is what role is Beyonce playing in creating this music? I mean, there's a lot of controversy and swirl that has whirled around Beyoncé throughout her entire career about her taking credit for things that potentially others are doing in the creation of her music. Right. She has a writing credit on every single one of these songs. What do you make of that?
2: Beyonce has a writing credit on every single song that she has put out except for the ones on the first album. Yes, exactly. from a standpoint of most pop artists. That is just a tactical thing to do. Like, that Mm -hmm. is just the way that you are able to profit off of your own music. By getting the publishing rights to the music, that is the way that you will be able to profit off of your number one singles. Like, that is just, like, pop 101. There is a lot of controversy over, does Beyonce write songs? Mm -hmm. Is Beyonce involved in the studio beyond performing and singing the songs? And, I mean, that's not just... Because she's Beyonce, that's just the way people looked at pop music at sure. the time. There was, of course, with this like huge wave of these young pop stars who are, again, very bubblegummy and kind of pure and like teens and presenting a very specific image in contrast to the other images of music at that time like you Mm -hmm. think of like nu metal and the wave of rock music happening at that time Mm -hmm. this post grunge era of authenticity politics in music they were seen as extremely inauthentic and seen as not as serious artists so Beyonce is getting this as much as every other pop artist at the time is getting this and every pop artist since has gotten because you are not writing your own songs you want to not be respected that's still a thing that exists in pop music I personally and having interviewed like songwriters who have worked with her and I think this has become a bigger part of her writing strategy and the way that she makes music like, I interviewed Sia years ago and she described Beyonce as sort of like Dr. Frankenstein almost right, with right, music where she right. will have all these writers working together she knows exactly how to piece together the best parts of everyone's songs like mm-hmm. you think of like Hold Up and how you know you have Father John Misty and Diplo and Ezra Koenig on yeah. there but like none of them work together right on any of it and like the AAS they didn't know they were all going to be on the same song together but it's because she has this way of knowing. Like okay, like well, this line really works well with this melody mm-hmm. and this other part of it, or like this verse is really good. So I think that's always been the way some of the best pop artists have always worked is that they know really well how to construct the song with it. I don't get vibes that Beyonce is pen and paper, and she's never really touted herself as that, but she's very smart and very good at being this producer of it, of like mm-hmm. a, a vocal producer, a, a melody producer, of knowing exactly how to make the best structured song. And I think that's where Beyonce lies. And and I don't think that's any less than what other songwriters do.
0: I've always said editor-in-chief. I think she's the Anna Wintour of her music. She's not doing the styling, she's not taking the pictures, whatever, but I think she comes up with the vision for these songs, she comes up with the direction for them, She, as you said, she pieces them all together, she knows how it should look and sound, and I think that's her version of songwriting and production I have no evidence of this, but that is my impression, and I feel like that is true here I have a sense from these songs, given what a clear point of view that they all have that she was like, I want to speak to Girls my ages, experiences with men, and these are how I want to convey these emotions. And then she's able to utilize a Candy Burris or a Dark Child or whatever to her purposes. I think in just the thread we've been pulling out about myth building, I think Beyonce knows that like where she was going, this was an important element to her myth was that she is involved in this way in the studio and having that be branded from the beginning was tantamount to her vision for herself as a pop star.
2: And I think that's the controversies early on of like the credit that she took for songwriting the storytelling with it is of course she's going to say that she like put pen to paper and wrote this stuff. No one was respecting anyone who didn't do that. Like there's an idea that there's only one single way that you can be an artist, an authentic artist and like if you weren't doing that you were somehow less than even though you're working your ass off and you could be in the studio for even longer than those people who are doing what people consider to be authentic. It was a a game strategy to maintain a certain level of respect and authority. Right. Even though she didn't need to do it, you know, she shouldn't have had to.
0: Right. Let's talk about Say My Name, which I think stands to this day probably still, I mean, they have a lot of memorable hits, but I still sometimes think of this as their signature song. This song is an absolute marvel on numerous levels. One, obviously we've talked about this sort of futurism, stuttering staccato production from Rodney Jerkins, led by, interestingly, like a Spanish guitar line over this stuttering beat and these sort of dramatic string sections. And I also pulled out a quote, Brittany, from your colleague, Rob Sheffield, who reviewed this record and said, <laughs> quote, say my name is a hypnotic loop of sex and dread twitching with unbearable lust while the lyrics spill to near psychotic paranoia, which I thought was a very well Perfect. said version <laughs> of this song. This is yeah. an important song for us to talk about because it is the prototypical Beyonce infidelity anthem Yes. Talk to me a little bit about just generally what the theme of Say My Name is.
2: Uh, it's really just being underappreciated. Like, it's right. very much say my name and no one's around you. Say maybe I love you. Like, it's right. like show that you appreciate me in times that you don't think it matters. Like, right. Say it all the time. This right. is a very much, and again, underappreciation is a big part of a lot of the music too. is like you're right. being undervalued by right. the person who you love the most. And so that's sort of like a, an underlying theme that she. Digs the most into later with right. lemonade, right. and this is the jumping-off point for a lot of that. A little more vulnerable than a lot of yeah. the other songs from Destiny's Child right.
0: canon. Being lied to, almost also then being underappreciated. She says, "What is up yeah. with this? Tell the truth. Who you with?" What is up with this? Tell the
1: truth. Believe that you are right home by just heard the voice, heard the voice of someone
0: else. I think Rob's referring to it as paranoia, but justified paranoia is sort of the emotional engine of this song. Like I yeah. was thinking about it, listening to it this time, like how much of it is about her intergenerational trauma. And again, this isn't just because I just watched Lemonade. Beyoncé comes from a history of infidelity, as we now know. Matthew cheated Mm -hmm. on her mother. There's real pathos to Beyoncé when she sings about infidelity from this early thing. She is incredibly believable, even at age 17 or 18, which is how old she probably is when this record is made and recorded, when she sings about a man that is lying to her and about the paranoia and anxiety that produces for her in her life, which is... I think yeah. what really this song hinges on there's a spark of something singular and real there that is a lineage of songs that travel through her entire discography real pathos yeah. real sadness real scorn and anger
2: real anger real drama like drama, it's very yes. like it's not right but it's okay like you feel like yes. you're having this conversation yes. you're watching someone argue with yes. someone yes <laughs> That's something that Destiny Child plays with even more later, where you do feel like you're hearing one side of a phone conversation. Oh
0: my God, exactly that. It's a sad song. It's just like I always think of this as such a kiss off and a fun song to like sing in the club. But this is genuinely a sad song because what it's really speaking about is like what lying in a relationship and what stepping out and violating trust does to someone's mind. It takes you to like an operatic place of paranoia. And that is what this song essentially is encapsulating, I think, and that is a Beyonce tried and true thing. Can I trust my reality? Can I trust you? Why do you lie to me? Why is there dissonance between what you're saying and what you're doing? Where are you? Can you just be straight with me? I mean, that's what say my name is really, I think a euphemism for which is like, can you just be honest and be straight me and yeah This is something that obviously runs deep to her because she hasn't even met Jay-Z at this point. So whatever's going to happen in the future of their relationship is still in the future. Yet, even still at this early stage, I'm just utterly taken with how real this all feels to her and how much sadness is conveyed in this song by her. Yeah. This is a fascinating anthem of this era.
2: And it creates all the the best Dusty Child drama too. Well, let's talk about that. So as we were (laughs)
0: talking about, Writings on the Wall, one of the most successful albums of all time. It sells, I think, 8 million copies in the United States alone. A very unified, cohesive aesthetic album. I think one of the great girl group R&B albums of all time. It's really worth listening to as a piece of art. Behind the scenes, things are going to absolute shit. While Destiny's yes. Child is becoming the biggest group on planet Earth, rivaling Brittany, rivaling Christina, rivaling a lot of these white pop stars of this era, what is happening? Between Beyonce, Kelly, Latoya, and Latavia. And maybe Matthew. <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean, Matthew is still the manager. Yes. His vision has come to fruition. And mm-hmm. the band is becoming very, very big. Mm-hmm. And Latavia and Latoya did not see that the writing on the wall was that Beyonce <laughs> was the star. <laughs> and that Kelly was um, yep. grandfathered into this stardom pact because of their closeness to the family. Mm-hmm. They... not getting paid as well they weren't going to quit the group but they were trying to not have matthew be their manager anymore they wanted Mm -hmm. to be managed by someone else because they felt like they were getting the short end of the stick like they were not getting paid as much as beyonce and kelly they're on way less of the songs on writings and so they are trying to get new managers again they're not trying to leave the group but then they find out that they have been fired from the group (laughs) and um so the say my name video recast them two new girls are debuted of course michelle and farah are brought in to the group they make their debut in the say my name video and they're still using latoya and latavia's
0: vocals they're using latoya latavia's vocals and they're also casting like a series of other women in the video in a purposeful obscuring of who the members of destiny's child are besides beyonce essentially
2: yeah just real chaos real messy (laughs) and that's how they find out and then it creates a lawsuit and a lot of public messiness ensues that also gives say my name a lot more attention as well it wasn't
1: something that happened suddenly like at the spur of the moment it was something that had been going on it was things that we were noticing it was conflicts that were going on yeah the departure was like this we always tried to work out our differences and communicate between each other and we always tried to communicate but we were having Problems um, for a while now. It's just a real, real weird feeling to actually be with somebody since you were nine and ten, and then be separated Eight. so suddenly. That's. I mean, like, the drop
0: of a head. And also comes to define the group as, like, a kind of joke, which I think is another important element of this. Like As
1: a
2: joke, it creates a lot of, I mean, all press is good press, but bad press for Beyonce. Like, right. you know, the idea that she is a diva, that right. her dad is putting all these other women through this backup singer thing to make his daughter star, and so it creates a narrative of inequality within the group that Beyonce is the person causing all this drama.
0: So, as Brittany was mentioning, two members are originally brought in michelle williams who goes on to be the canonical third member yeah. of the group and this woman Farah franklin who is a member of the group i think for something Less like yeah
2: like i think she tours with them briefly and i know she records at least one or two songs for the next album
0: right but she's not long for the group and soon destiny's child is the trio that we know them as today which is beyonce kelly and Michelle Williams, who got added through some sort of audition process. So they go into making their third record, which is 2001 Survivor, I guess in the interim of this, though, they have one of their biggest hits that serves both as kind of like the lead single for Survivor and also is the soundtrack single for the movie Charlie's Angels with Cameron Diaz, Lucy Liu, and Drew Barrymore called Independent Woman, which I feel like we should talk about Independent Woman before we talk about Survivor in the sense that I feel like Independent Woman is the crystallizing of another huge Destiny's Child ethos, which is making these broad anthems about women's empowerment that like represent a certain sort of brand of feminism like how is destiny's child's specific brand of feminism represented in a song like independent woman even in ways we've talked about before like
2: it's really an extension of spice girls girl power like you know as the spice girls (laughs) faded destiny's child was able to refill that part of what made the spice girls such a huge entity of they were in competition with these boy bands that female audiences young female audience at the time were thirsty after and they were able to provide the empowerment angle to it and i think Destiny's Child had established themselves already, but being able to also now step in and provide that was a big part of it. It feels very much an extension of that Spice Girls era of girl power
1: pop.
0: I think what also is important to call out about Independent Woman is it continues this theme of money, wealth, making your own money being a very important part of Beyonce's feminism. Her feminism and her feminist anthems always center around the idea that I buy my own things. I'm able to support myself because I think somewhere in her mind, it's obvious to me that the idea is that if you don't do that as a woman, you are essentially going to be in an imbalanced gender dynamic in your relationship. And one of the famous lines in this song is always 50 50 in relationships which is i think clearly a goal and sort of an aspiration of beyonce in terms of like how she presents herself as a woman in a lot of her music Question,
1: tell me how you feel about this try to control me boy you get dismissed pay my own funnel and i pay my own bills always 50 50 in relationships the shoes on my feet i
2: thinking about, again, where we just came off with the 90s is, like, we had this moment, again, where it's like we are seeing black millionaires. We're seeing Mm. black artists own their music, own their careers, and own businesses and own labels in a way that was reshaping a lot of the shittier things that happened with Motown and Barry Gordy, you know, a lot of black artists from the 50s to, I mean, still now, but we were in a moment where it was, like, a bigger wave of artists owning their music and themselves and their lives a little bit more than the Motown artists who were literally like grasping for straws when they could get it the artists before them who just were paid in dirt and dust mm-hmm. and you are on stage now, that's enough, right? And like, yeah. I think we entered this era of like, you know, there's more and more black artists who were starting to own labels. There were a lot more black CEOs at labels and executives. And we're seeing some producers and writers who are black having number one hits. You know, in a lot of ways, that music that Beyonce's making was so much of a victory lap of yes. black right. business, right. And Like of black wealth, and right? of these decades and decades of crawling and clawing your way to the top. You know, you finally can celebrate and sit in that and like of course you know women always kind of got shafted in that there weren't women CEOs they weren't like black women who were running these things there weren't black female songwriters being celebrated on the left I mean, candy wasn't being as celebrated as sure. like the black right. men you know, she deserved to get as much like recognition that era as like baby face it was a celebration of that yes and I think that's why it's reflected so much in her music because she's popping off at a time that allowed people who look like her to have mm. their own money and to own a business and to possibly one day own a label as she would do
0: I also I think it's sort of funny to have your comeback single after you like fire half the group be like women yeah. we're independent and like we get to make our own decisions about our life <laughs> and wealth accumulation I was like that's an interesting irony of this song. girl power except for that's real th- girl power <laughs> Let's talk about the song Survivor, which is, I guess, technically the second single off of this record. How does Survivor yeah. engage with the narrative of the women leaving the group? Like, I couldn't get over. I was laughing my fucking ass off listening to this song because it is the shadiest fucking song of all time. But they're yeah. still positioning themselves as, like, these good girl Christians. Like, Kelly's entire verse is, like, I'm better than that. I'm better than this. Yeah. I'm not going to talk shit about you on the internet. I'm not I'm like, oh, so you're not gonna talk shit about them on the internet, but you're gonna make a number one song that's essentially like dragging these bitches straight to hell. Like
2: just- once again, that's pop, baby. <laughs> that's real real bad blood between oh them. God, um, literally. Yeah. Oh my god,
0: you couldn't we couldn't escape it.
2: It's just such a funny song. Oh my god. Oh, it generally. is literally so <laughs> like you said, like it's like I'm not talking shit, however, I'm going <laughs> to talk shit on this song. It's just like it's so insane as a concept. Um and the idea that they survive something like you i do
0: fired. i know literally it's so you funny. laid off from your girl group but like they really believe no it like they like beyonce's <laughs> never sounded up to this point like more a hundred percent the conviction yeah. like she genuinely feels like with 100 certainty that she has just survived something biblically horrible and that she has come out on top like that's what the vibe yeah. i get from her on this song <laughs> now that you're out of my life
1: i'm so much better that i'd be weak without you but i'm stronger
2: for a lesser star could have been a very career-ending moment that bad press could have really ruined her. Yes. Again, like there is still like a lot of issues of like how you present yourself as a black artist and as a black woman, but like that could have really probably like if she had not wielded it that way.
0: Yeah, what I was also going to say is that I think the thing that is so incredible about this record is that it's engaging with the celebrity narrative that could have, as you said, easily crushed them, like easily crushed them. But the problem is these hits are so fucking iconic and amazing that like if the music wasn't there, they would have been fucked. But the bottom line is... This album has an opening trio murderers row of classic hits of the era including this record that's just like well when the music speaks for itself it speaks for itself it can kind of win out over any dying narrative you know what i mean yeah and
2: it's like a fool me one shame on you like one bad press narrative like this is like the first blip in the packaging of beyonce and destiny's child right it's a narrative that continues in her music and her career but she is able to like really wield it and make something like this that's like shady and fun but also like still empowering, still in the same veins as independent women. If you took away what we know right, about it, it right. could be about again, like another like shitty guy who's like screwed right, totally. you. Up. That's what I thought the song was about when I was younger. Like I thought it was about the same totally. thing that say my name was about. I survived this guy. It's so universal in that element of this could be about anything that's wronged you and anyone who's wronged you.
0: Yeah, and I think it's also ultimately like in the production choices the ultimate bombastic Destiny's Child production like those boom boom booming drums and that like yeah circular string section it's like just this swirl of vitriol and pettiness pettiness on an operatic scale that's what (laughs) i've been trying to get at this whole time they make pettiness into art in this music in a way that is just so delightful and fun (laughs) like it's just it is so much fun (laughs) let's talk about the third I mean, is there a better opening one, two, three punch on a record that you can think of? Independent Woman, Survivor, and then fucking Bootylicious, the third song. And they all give you something different. It's like, you've got the feel good, independent woman anthem. You've got the revenge fantasy song. And then you've got a song that very uniquely celebrates their blackness, I think, in terms of their corporal form and Beyonce, what she represented at the time. This song Bootylicious, talk to me about Bootylicious and how that presents kind of like a different angle on Destiny's Child.
2: As a Stevie Nicks super fan. Yes. Bootylicious holds such a special place in my heart of like the combination of Beyonce and Stevie Nicks. I couldn't have written better fanfic about. Like it was oh, just like God. the perfect sample of Edge of 17. Mm-hmm. Again, like, we're creating language, we're creating words, we're creating things that become part of our pop culture vocabulary that mm-hmm. we're able to use and maintain and become such a part of it. It's just like such a fun song. I mean, yes. it's just such a silly song. Again, like, they're having so much more fun now. Like, they just sound more youthful. Like, they sound more youthful in their third album than they do on their first album. We're like young and we're fun, and we are singing about like how you're not ready for this jelly. Like, uh, it's just very 2000s of like so just sing about asses. It's such a great era. We love songs about butts. Like, that's just like such a good moment.
0: I love what you're saying about the comedy value because it's so hard to make pop songs that are genuinely funny. Like, it's not actually, like, that common. Bootylicious and Survivor are both genuinely hilarious songs. Like, they are really funny.
2: It is so hard to make songs that are funny but not a joke. Yes, exactly. Exactly.
0: It's still cool. These are still like the most state of the art pop records of this moment too. That's the other thing. But at the same time, Bootylicious was kind of like an emblem of a certain era. I mean, yeah. obviously it is genuinely comedy in and of itself to look back and think about Jennifer Lopez and Beyonce at this time representing some sort of curvaceous body in the media. But that yeah. was the thing that everybody was yeah. talking about at that time was that Beyonce and Jennifer Lopez yeah. both were women of color who had butts. And that was like yeah. a huge difference deal and the song was taking that narrative and going, Yeah, we do and like that's beautiful too. And that was kind of a powerful statement in the era of the Britney Spears body.
2: It's a real clear wow, we let these two women of color slip through the cracks of right. like standards of beauty. <laughs> but like let's point out what makes them so different right from the other women. <laughs> like, and also
0: you look back on it now and you're like they don't look that different. Like they're both absolutely like fucking like, so like, thin. So,
2: it's so crazy what <laughs> yeah, like it's just like so insane. It it
0: really lets you know like why we're so fucked up as a generation that like that was what it, was mean, sold yeah, to us like we really, really like there's no wonder yeah. that we are like all fucked in the head from this
2: and again it was like this is the benefit that a lot of not to say that these artists or any less talented than a lot of their contemporaries but it's like the advantage that Beyonce had that JLo had that again like Halle Berry Bean, and Lucy Lou is like they right. all were able to appeal to white audiences in a way where they had enough features where they were just deemed exotic right you know <laughs> (laughs) people love calling people exotic accessible version
0: (laughs) with they were accessibly exotic right right
2: Uh, which what a time i mean it's it's crazy what a time it continues
0: to be i mean we're we're making slow strides i guess yeah so survivor smash success album once again as we said independent woman number one hit survivor title track number two hit uh, bootylicious also a number one hit emotions we didn't get to talk about it. their cover of the bg song is also a hit Love of that this record cover. very nice cover
1: in heart,
0: So after Survivor, though, the first epic or the main epic of Destiny's Child sort of comes to a conclusion. They all go off on solo careers. I don't know if you've heard some went better than others. Um,
2: (laughs) You don't say.
0: So in... The next couple of years, Beyonce obviously ventures off to a massively successful solo career, which begins in earnest with appearances in films like The Fighting Temptations, Austin Powers and Goldmember, etc., and then obviously culminates in her smash success debut record, Dangerously in Love, which we will be talking about on next week's episode. The other girls also go off on have solo careers during this period that are slightly less huge. Of course, Kelly has a huge hit with Nelly called Dilemma. She releases a solo album called Simply Deep that has a few minor hits. Michelle also takes on some solo endeavors. And then, surprisingly, in 2004, after Beyonce has officially become the biggest new solo artist on the planet, she comes back and records another album with Destiny's Child in 2004, post Dangerously in Love. Did you think Beyonce would return to Destiny's Child after having the explosive success of of Dangerously in Love? Absolutely not. <laughs> no one else did uh, why do you think she did that what do you think that says about destiny's child generally i thought
2: about that a lot actually and i think it's similar to michael still doing stuff with jackson five like it's family i think she wanted to be back i mm. think there was unfinished business they only released one album as the trio right i i think she wanted to leave the legacy off on a, a better note the only album with michelle was so much a response to right the end of the prior quartet of Destiny's Child. Right. I think that there was still a lot of love for Destiny's Child, its family, and also I think it was just to kind of end the legacy off on a better note.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Give it a denouement of some sort. Yeah. Do you think we can hear Beyonce's solo career influence on the music on Destiny Fulfilled? Do you feel like there's ways that her success and whatever she did in the creative process of making Dangerously in Love is reflected in A Lose My Breath in A Soldier, et cetera, et cetera?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, way more adult generally right. i think mm-hmm. they're coming into this album as women and as grown women and as grown women who want to sing very grown women topics like yes as a group they didn't really have the same type of maturity curve narrative that Mm. other artists had and so i think being able to again come off this very blanket statement empowerment of a lot of the music to create this like really dynamic provocative songs that are super sexy about like really adult relationship problems destiny fulfilled like this was like them sort of being able to be like we can give our all to this one more time and Mm. make this type of album together and then really go on our ways.
0: You know what's interesting, I thought about this, is that Lose My Breath and Soldier aside, which are both in their own ways, like traditionally bombastic Destiny's Child singles, The album is like weirdly aesthetically chill in a way that I would never describe Survivor or the writings on the wall. Like this is like kind of a groovy 70s soul and R&B album outside of those kind of red herring couple of singles.
2: Oh yeah. And it's very much even more so about the joys of monogamy. <laughs> like it's like... <laughs> exactly.
0: Well, that's the thing. Single... that's Because that's what Dangerously in Love is essentially yeah. about. When I think about Dangerously in Love as essentially an ode to, as you said, the joys, pleasures of monogamous love, I think this record really reflects that in a way that the early Destiny's Child albums don't, which makes me also highlight how involved Beyonce truly is in the creative process of these songs because they're so clearly a reflection of like where she is in her journey as a person.
2: Yeah, and I, I wonder too how much of re-partnering with Michelle and Kelly allowed a little bit of the idea that it was just going to be her and Jay-Z.
0: Right. You know, like right. I, I wonder
2: if that allowed that to be like blurred a little bit. Mm. There was the risk of her music career becoming too intertwined with Jay-Z too early on. I see, I see,
0: I and see. And not
2: on her own terms. Like right. she could have easily been overshadowed by her very celebrated, already legendary boyfriend. And I think to kind of come back and do this album where there's an absence of Jay-Z and there is no him there, I think that sort of allows like a new sort of narrative.
0: Well, it's interesting because there is no him there, but one way that he sort of appears, I feel like, on this record in absentia is on Soldier because that's maybe Beyonce and Destiny's Child's most sort of overt, directly hip-hop, record that they had produced to that point
1: yeah
2: It's obviously reflecting a lot more of those kind of current rap trends that were right. happening right then. Right. Like more of the Southern rap that was right. really, really taking off that I'm sure they probably wanted to do like, so much harder than anything that they've totally.
1: done yet. <laughs> <laughs> Girls we like.
2: It's a horny album, too. Like, it's a very horny album in the way that their music had not been. Known to carry big things, if you know what I mean. Like, in the seventh grade, really took off <laughs> lyrically for him. Yeah, totally. Oh, my God, that's so true. Yeah, yeah. They're
0: more—yeah, <laughs> and that's so funny when you think about it, because, like, really, oh, none of the previous Destiny Child songs are about sex in this way. Like, they're yeah. about relationship dynamics, but they're never really, like, a hot sex anthem in the way that, like, Lose My Breath is essentially yeah. a hot sex anthem. What do you make of the song cater to you? This song is a very interesting reflection of Beyoncé's fundamentally conservative relationship values in the yeah. face of someone that gets constantly pegged for her feminism and who in Destiny's Child was known as like a voice for women and providing a voice for women in gender dynamics to release this song is a very interesting stance for her to take and I remember almost feeling a little bit like it was a yuck for me when I first listened to it
1: your me run your bath water. Whatever you
2: Some of my least favorite like Beyonce songs are like, How great is it to be a wife? <laughs>
0: I'm saying, like, what, like, and not just just how great is it to be a wife, how great is it to be a wife that puts her slippers on her husband and gets dinner ready? And there's, like, really icky lines on this song, like, I promise I'm going to keep my body up for you so that I still look like the girl that you married. It almost feels like not a slap in the face is not the right word but it really feels like a very pointed thing from her of saying like you might think of me as this pop feminist but I'm actually also really into like conservative gender norms and like being in this dynamic. That's a very strange song but I think maybe the last song we should pull out of Destiny Fulfilled is the last single from the record and kind of their last single as the group as we know them pretty much. The song Girl which is this sort of lovely neo soul ode to their friendship.
2: This is like the one Thing that I wish they had done more of Like I love this song This is like one of my favorite, favorite Destiny's Child songs It's such like a, a soothing song in a lot of ways It's just like yes. really pretty And it's just I like, agree. really just
1: smooth Girl, I can tell you've been crying And you're needing somebody to talk to Girl, I can tell he's been lying And pretending that he's and he loves you Girl, you don't have to be hiding Don't you be ashamed to say he hurt you on your girl, I love that
2: video. I love the way it sounds. I agree. Like, the Sex
0: and the City Ode video is a classic. Yes. It's a really lovely note for them to end on. I mean, unlike most girl groups, they didn't end on a sour note. They didn't end with some sort of like explosive. Yeah. I mean, they they had that in the it's middle. their family. Yeah, it's really yeah. sweet. So... Destiny fulfilled is also a very big album and they have two number three singles, lose my breath and soldier. Both are number three singles. And that's yeah. kind of it on destiny's child's musical output. They appear often though, in Beyonce's solo work. They're in the superpower music video. They come out at the super bowl. They've come out at Coachella. Yeah. Beyonce really incorporates them as a huge part of her legacy. What is destiny's child's legacy? Like how do we see their impact in pop either right after them or since them are like, where have we seen the impact of destiny child either in their music, or their ethos?
2: I mean, we haven't really had as many girl groups in the immediate aftermath of destiny's child of course like with k-pop we have like so many more and they're all really pulling from destiny's child musically um yeah. the presentation of destiny's child and also like the fusion of hip-hop and r&b and pop together is so much a part of that but there was sort of like an absence of girl groups for so long that mm-hmm. really blew up prior to like black pink and Espa. like we had fifth harmony and little mix who did fine they never really hit the same stride i think girl groups have always struggled to reach a certain level of success yeah, the way right. that boy bands that weren't easily found, it's really hard to mimic and recreate what we had with them because again, like Beyonce made it so special.
0: I think the thing that we should highlight maybe most importantly, yes, I mean of course like in their wake was 3LW and like a couple of failed girl groups and as you said, girl groups have struggled in the last 20 years to really like gain the same sort of foothold that the Spice Girls and Destiny's Child and TLC really achieved in this particular period of time. But I think one of the main legacies of Destiny's Child and it's born out in Beyonce and it's born out in all the other pop stars that have come since them is this pop feminism i mean they really took their role as being a voice for women i mean them in particular for black women underneath the surface that was really one of the main engines behind their ethos but i really do think they created a new take on pop feminism and girl power of being this independent woman who takes care of yourself and sort of celebrating yourself as this powerful fully embodied financially independent business-owning woman that I do think we see traces of in Lady Gaga, in Rihanna, to be obviously majorly throughout Beyonce's career. I feel like that's kind of like the vibe of Destiny's Child that has like kind of reverberated through pop, both through Beyonce's solo music and through the rest of pop like their whole thing was like independent women like we are women we stand up for each other even though if the group didn't always like reflect this in the way that they actually interacted yeah. with each other that was the message that they wanted to put out there was that like yeah. women should be able to like stand on their own and feel empowered and can lift each other up and I think that's what Beyonce returning for the final album sort of says in like spirit I think that's kind of the thing that I think of when I think of like what Destiny Child's legacy like, is
2: yeah and so much. My- of what they did too is bring sometimes like a weird and sometimes troubled history of black female vocal groups right. to a really incredible place. Right. They sort of were able to bring that history and fold in that history but bring it to a much better place. They had this uniform quality to them. They had this uniform presentation to them where they moved as a unit. They moved as this group that were matching outfits and they were able to also be liberated in their sexuality and they mm-hmm. were able to make the themes of independence that the girl groups that paved this way for them did didn't always have the ability to and also do that in the way that the girl groups who had more short-lived success weren't able to profit off of and make into more lasting and enduring careers and so we'll never see another group like them i don't think i don't think we'll see this sort of same narrative we only get one beyonce it's a good thing the earth burns in like 30 years because yeah. then maybe another beyonce emerges yeah. but like you know we only get one
0: Let's talk about the pop pantheon. Where do you see Destiny's Child falling in the pop pantheon?
2: So I actually kind of struggling with which one, mm-hmm. and I have settled on tier two. I was between Ooh. tier one and tier two. I can't give them any less than tier two. There's no, there's no really? way I can give them any less. Oh I, my god! I literally cannot because the thing is, you have Beyonce, right? Yeah. Who is
0: a clear tier one, like a yeah. A, you cannot. That's, that's undebatable. Yeah.
2: You can't argue that no. she's any less. Right. So when you have a group that creates a clear tier one, right. they can't be any less than a tier two to me.
0: I don't know. I think they're tier three. The influence is huge, but we're really talking about three albums, 10 hit songs. I mean, I think the influence, the, the impact, the shadow is long, but I definitely feel like if you separate Beyonce from them, because we're just talking about Destiny's Child here, we're going to do a separate yeah. ranking for Beyonce yeah. herself. They've got to be in tier three. Because like, think about <laughs> No, no. They can't.
2: It. You can't separate Beyonce from them.
0: You can't. You have to because she's gonna have a separate conversation. Where no, but I, I
2: mean, that's the thing. Though, was like at first I was like, it's hard for me to put anything that Beyonce does below tier one, right? But like then I was like, well, Destiny's Child is not tier one. That's no. just like...
0: No, they're you know, not. But they're listen, not. let me just talk to you about tier three, okay? One to three albums or eras over at least a half a decade that spawned numerous hit singles. Bullseye, yes. One to three <laughs> albums, five to ten genuine smash hits. At least one album that had a major impact with many hit songs. I'd say they had two, maybe three of those. Defined or helped to find a very specific moment, yes. Very well known and meaningful to anyone who was of prime age when they were having their moment, yes. Okay, here's a question for you. How many Destiny Child songs do you think are recognizable to... 16 year old i
2: don't know i'd probably say like four or five
0: yeah what do you think independent woman bootylicious
2: survivor bootylicious bootylicious being sampled in a current single right Mm -hmm. now that's taking off on tiktok Mm -hmm. the fact that bootylicious samples another song and it's the bootylicious version of that other song (laughs) that is the sample
0: okay but i'm just okay Um, but like my name listen listen tier two okay this is tier two and this is why i just don't think they fit this totally is that highly relevant in producing numerous, at least 15 genuine hit songs over a decade. They didn't make it that far. Their career was 98 to 04, that's six years. Generation yeah. defining, yes, I would give them that. A successful yeah. reinvention or musical image overhaul, I don't think that they had that on their own. I think they could tour arenas, but that's mainly because of Beyonce, I think, at this point. Legacy largely yeah. set in stone, I agree with that. I don't know. I mean, I see what you're saying, but like, I don't think that like they'd put Destiny's Child in a headlining spot on the Super Bowl in 2022 by themselves. I just... I don't know. I think your nostalgia is overtaking you here in this moment. I have I to be know. honest with you. Brittany, I, I have just, to be honest with you. I think you're letting your perspective as a millennial overtake your better judgment. I don't
2: know. I just I really <laughs> I,
0: I'm sorry. It was so short. It's so short. We're talking about six years. They fit in that category so squarely. To We're
2: me. not including girls' time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what yes.
0: about? Say oh, I forgot yes. the reinvention from Girl's <laughs> Time into Destiny's Child, of course. One of Pop's most famous. I
2: just, it's hard. It's h- really, really hard to think about Destiny's Child separate from Beyonce in a way that I think is really crucial to how I'm ranking Destiny's Child. It's just like so key to everything. Right.
0: I think Destiny's Child is included in Beyonce's ranking, but I don't think it's vice versa. That's how I see it. I think you can't think about Beyonce's career without thinking about Destiny's Child. But I think imagine if... Destiny's Child had ended and there was no Beyonce career. It's just... That's another another universe. The legacy you're talking about that has created Destiny Child to have this outsized legacy is Beyonce's subsequent solo success.
2: Yeah, I I think like the thing, like this is the same thing with like One Direction 2, right? Where I was like, it's hard to separate it from what they created after because that is so much of the legacy that you leave behind. Right. Not every vocal group leaves behind that type of legacy. You're not guaranteed a Beyonce in your group. You're not guaranteed a Justin Timberlake out of an NSYNC. And you're not guaranteed a Michael Jackson out of a Jackson 5. Like you're not guaranteed these things there are so many groups that have passed and gone through the ringer who have had huge hits who have had six years of recognition but you don't every day create an artist who has had that impact and that not only has that impact but also folds that legacy of their group that they were in into who they are today. Right. That is like the structure of Beyonce is so intertwined with Destiny's Child. It's not the same as Justin Timberlake completely squandering away every single sync thing and being like that is not part of me anymore. Dismissing it, right. You know, it is just so intertwined the same way that the Beatles are still so intertwined in who Paul McCartney is. Like you do not go to a Paul McCartney concert and not hear Yeah, but that's a little bit different
0: because Paul McCartney's legacy is still, even with all of his solo success, still primarily the Beatles, which is not what you would say about I disagree with that. But more so than Destiny's Child is Beyoncé. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beyoncé's solo career has usurped Destiny's Child's legacy. Yes, and I think that's the hope,
2: but that is such a difficult thing.
0: I hear you and I respect you like no other but I just I can't I just feel like I have to think of this in isolation I get what you're saying but I also just feel like it was six years and it was very yeah. short lived and that that's hard to for me it's, to put in the it's two just two. like that
2: the isolation are, is not my brain's not letting it happen are we at an impasse are we
0: at an impasse <laughs> have we reached an impasse I'll give
2: like a, a two and a half wouldn't that wait yeah it's two and a half I can't count <laughs> okay
0: all right we'll see what i do in post we'll see what i do I can't in post do, production I can't do math
2: um, so two and a half is correct i can't okay. do math
0: i think we might not agree on this at the end of the day and i like i see what you're saying i respect you so much i'll just leave it at that for now yeah <laughs> last question for you what is an underrated destiny's child song one we have not yet discussed perhaps that we could send this podcast out on
2: I'm a destiny fulfilled girl. Like, I really, mm-hmm. really love that album. Mm-hmm. And I think that was also, like, part of my life where I was really starting to, like, really love music. And yes. that album right. was part of that. Yes. And I would say T-shirt is a song that I always really loved. Like, that was, like, the ballad on here. That's, like, such a sexy song.
0: Mm. Beyonce was definitely in her, like, creamy, sexy era during this period yeah. of time. All right, yeah. let's go out on T-shirt. Britney Britney Spanos. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank
2: you. Thank you for having me.
1: Thinking of course. you.
0: All right, that's it. Destiny's Child, I'm sorry to Brittany, but I am going to put them in Tier 3. The judgment is rendered, but I want to say thank you so, so much to the wonderful, incredible, insightful, brilliant Brittany Spanos for being my guest on this episode. Please, if you are in Los Angeles, come out to Gorgeous Gorgeous this weekend, Saturday, July 16th at Resident in Downtown LA. The link for tickets is in my bio. Please follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ Xiv on both Twitter and Instagram. Get in the Discord channel, rate and review Pod Pantheon wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much to Russ Martin for all the help he provides in supporting making this show happen. And come back next week where we will be discussing part one of Beyonce's solo career. And until then, you guys, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye.